Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you'll be with us once again tonight as we embark on a journey into your words and prepare our ourselves to be um, more diligent um, ambassadors of your kingdom. We ask that you'll continue to um, equip us by your Holy Spirit so that we can supernaturally retain what we're about to learn and put it to application. We can put feet to our felt. Uh, feet to our faith. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We take it very seriously, and we ask that you'll be with those who couldn't make it tonight but wanted to. Thank you, Lord, for um, this particular time. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, let's jump into the um, Matthew chapter 9 uh, study, entitled, essentially, the working title is Judaism v. Christianity, but the longer title is, um, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? And we basically have been working through um, some commentaries on a particular passage found in the book of Matthew. It's also found in two of the other Gospels. Let's read the Matthew versions you can see on my screen. And then we'll um, talk about the comments. So um, this is a question about fasting and patching old clothes and making wine. And so here's how it's recorded for us in the book of Matthew. Then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Jesus, Yeshua, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus says to them, in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then he continues with his lesson, whatever he's trying to impart to them, but he uses a second um, analogy. His second analogy starts in verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then he uses a third analogy, starting in verse 17. Neither is wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. End. So that's Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and that's the um, scriptural passage in question for our study. And so in the study that is available on my website at tatesaytor.com, I went through, and I'm still going through, I went through um, some different uh, examples from different uh, Christian resources. We looked at uh, Pastor John Piper, we looked at gotquestions.org, and we just recently finished looking at Pastor John MacArthur. And so now we're at a point where I'm going to be interacting with some of Pastor MacArthur's words. And as you know, if you've been following the study, go back and listen to episode number 179 and anything earlier than that. If you notice, um, the, the the sense of what what I walk away from when I look at Pastor MacArthur's comments, and that's what I'm going to pick up with here, is, and as I say to my commentary, um, did you catch the main import of his thoughts? There's so much more from this sermon, the one that shows up in my commentary, that I could have put in my commentary, but space doesn't permit it. Permit it. And I say, if my abbreviated representation is a bit confusing, then I encourage you to visit the link in the footnote and read the entire sermon for yourself and see if I maybe um, inadvertently, without knowing it, if I improperly quoted Pastor MacArthur in any way, which it's not my intent to you know, malign Pastor MacArthur's words or to quote him out of context or any such thing. So I encourage you, if you do read my commentary, take the time to go back and look at the um, link that I provided for you. 
So as you go through my own notes and look at Pastor MacArthur's uh, sermon here, be careful to um, try not to um, uh, misunderstand what Pastor MacArthur is trying to say. Um, and I continue my own commentary. I say I'm open to correction and will gladly retract or correct anything that knowingly or unknowingly slanders a fellow brother in Christ. I have the highest respect for Doctor or for uh, Pastor John MacArthur. I grew up listening to him, uh, listening to Christian radio uh, when I was younger, and even going on to work at a Christian radio station as a DJ. And so, being able to play those shows for other people to listen to when I was the DJ was just, you know, like an honor. Um, but so I'm, I've, I've got a lot of his theology in my head, and so I think I'm, I'm um, kind of following along with what he said. And so I say in my commentary, however, I don't think I misunderstood Pastor MacArthur here, and I am certainly not trying to slander my brother in Christ, right? God forbid, that's the last thing I would do. His advice to Christians to tell Jews to, quote, abandon their hope in their own works and their traditions and leave that religion behind, right? That's a quote uh, from his own commentary, from his own uh, sermon here. In my opinion, I think that that phrase needs to be clarified, right? Abandon your own works and your own traditions and leave that religion behind, all right? As if uh, MacArthur was telling uh, Jews who want to lead a life of Christianity you need to leave Judaism behind, right? Judaism and Christianity are incompatible. You can't be a Jew and a Christian. You can't practice Judaism and Christianity at the same time. I'm filling in words what I th that I think Pastor MacArthur perhaps might have said, although I don't think he said them uh, exactly the way I'm saying them. But I have heard many other Christians echo those same sentiments in my well-meaning dialogues with Christians, with well-meaning Christians. Um, it's it's a pretty popular stance to, to kind of um, assume that Christianity and and Judaism or Christianity and any other religion are incompatible. And there is some truth to that, like for instance in the examples that even Pastor MacArthur brought up about, you know, uh, Buddhism and, and Islam and, and um, maybe Mormonism and some other religions that are clearly outside the pale of a Christian worldview, even though some of them describe themselves as Christian, like um, uh, uh, Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually believe that they're inside of the circle of Christianity, when in reality, if you study their theology out, you'll realize how carefully dangerous and cultish it, it really is. But other religions, such as um, Islam and, um, say, Buddhism or other world religions, they are clearly not trying to represent themselves as Christian. And so even at, 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 at the surface level, they're not saying that, hey, we believe in Jesus. They don't claim those, those beliefs. But what happens if you were raised in an Islamic family, a Muslim family, and you came to a belief in Jesus? Could you practice Islam and still be a Christian? That's a good question that I'm not prepared to answer because I'm not an expert on Islamic theology and, and, and um, Muslim um, apologetics and things like that. Uh, maybe Dr. White, James White, would be a good one to ask. He's, he's an expert in that field. But I do tend to view myself as somewhat of a, a bit of an SME when it comes to Judaism, since that's the lifestyle that I lead, and those are the circles that I walk in and amongst, and I, um, I'm more familiar with that lifestyle. And so, can you be a Jew and believe in Jesus? Well, I believe the answer is yes. So I say in my commentary, Christians 
the people that I'm talking to, should instead be telling Jews, listen to this, okay, ready? Instead of telling them just, um, instead, let me back up. Instead of telling, using Dr. or Pastor Mark, I keep saying doctor. <laughs> I'm so used to calling him doctor. I think he is a doctor. I'm pretty sure he has a doctorate, but he doesn't use it in his titles. Instead of telling Jews, quote, abandon your hope in your own works and in your own traditions and leave that religion behind. And that's a direct quote from... Pastor MacArthur's sermon that we just looked at, in case you, those are not my words, those are his words. Um, he, what we should be telling them, say, okay, you ready for it? These are these, these now are my words. This, I think, would be a better way of witnessing to Jews. Quote, abandon your hope in your own works and your own traditions and fall on the mercy and grace of your Messiah Yeshua. In him, you can live the complete and fullest Jewish life you already seek to live. In Messiah, you become a Jew both inside and out. Okay, these are my own words. This is what I would say to a Jew who's considering becoming a Christian. Judaism, as a way of life, as grounded not in the traditions of the rabbis, but in the written word of God, is a wonderful gift from Hashem. Contrary to what the traditional church might be teaching, you do not need to leave your ancestral religion behind to embrace Jesus as Lord. This is what I would say to unsaved Jews who are seeking Messiah, Yeshua, seeking to call him Lord and Savior, but they're unsure what to do with their lifestyle of Judaism after they become a Christian. What do I do with the religion of Judaism? What do I do? Okay, I continue. And I conclude, really. Jesus and Judaism are not incompatible with one another. End. End quote. So, notice the radically different tone that I would take with an unsaved Jew than the tone that many Christians perhaps might take, but certainly the tone that Pastor MacArthur did take in his sermon. Pastor MacArthur thinks that Judaism is a bankrupt religion, according to the sermon that we're using as our example. Perhaps maybe he has retracted some of his statements in a future sermon. Maybe he went back and corrected himself. Maybe he apologized. I don't have that information in front of me. If you know, if you know of it and are aware of it, go ahead and leave me a note in the comments to, uh, below in this video and let me know, hey, Ariel, I heard that Pastor MacArthur apologized to Judaism and told him that uh, I don't think you need to leave Judaism behind and according to embrace Jesus. You can keep worshiping as a Jew and believing in Jesus. But at least from the snapshot of the sermon that we're working from in this study, I didn't get that picture. So what I get, the takeaway that I get, and, and I get this from other Christians as well, so Pastor MacArthur's not the only one quote-unquote guilty of this, is that Judaism and Christianity are incompatible one with one another. And it's because Judaism is seen by Christians as a religion of works or doing or merit salvation, merit theology, whereas Christianity is seen as a religion of of um of grace and where you know you're not trying to work your way into heaven so it kind of all goes back to that stereotypical um view or picture of of a religious jew who's trying to keep the commandments perfectly so that he can be uh counted as saved or earn his way into heaven or something like that all right so let's keep going through my commentary we're we're right here oops we're not like that let's try that again right there yeshua all I, these are my own words yeshua always has and always will have a problem with dead faith and a legalistic perversion of Torah, right? That's the given. It doesn't matter what religion you're in. We don't have to limit that to Judaism as if they have cornered the market somehow on legalism and they are the only ones in the world practicing legalistic works, right? No, that's not true. 
nearly every other man-made religion besides Christianity, if we want to separate Christianity and define it as a, a non-man-made religion, let's say that Christianity is that which uh, Yeshua and all the apostles modeled. So we wouldn't call it man-made, we would say it's heavenly in that regards, right? Christianity is unique in that sense. But all the other world religions, the comparative religions, you know, some of the ones I keep mentioning, Islam, Buddhism, um, I, those are just two of the ones that pop into my head instantly. I mean, there's there's a thousand other religions, I just can't name them all, but you guys get the idea of what I'm trying to say here. There's always some form of um, self-effort that is equal, it's tantamount to legalism. There's always some amount of self-effort or something you have to do to appease the deity, right? There's some um, mantra you have to recite. There's some prayer beads you have to thumb through your fingers. There's some um, penance, penance, penitence, penance um, that you have to perform. Uh, there's so many, some so x amount of rosaries that you have to pray, or or um, things like that. Um, you know, so many commandments to keep. So there is always the the possibility or the um, danger of falling into a self works a merit theology system a self-righteousness where your works are what you know pull you up pulled up by your own bootstraps but yeshua is always and always will have a problem with dead faith and legalistic perversion of store i continue so i don't see in the gospels right listen up i don't see where yeshua had a problem with judaism as a religion nor do i see any hint of this in paul's writings this view that Judaism was a dead and banked up religion that needed to be discarded and, be, and replaced by the new religion known as Christianity, carries over from Yeshua's life into the life of Paul in most Christian conversations. If you have a dialogue with your average Christian pastor, seminarian, or Bible student, you're going to find that quite often it's taught or popularly thought that Paul abandoned his former religion, his former life of Judaism, like he says in Galatians chapter 1. He abandoned that former lifestyle in favor of embracing this new life of Christianity. So Paul either started this new religion, Christianity, and ran with it, or he picked it up from Yeshua and ran with it and popularized it among his followers as he went around uh, in his missionary journeys and wrote letters here and there, dismantling Judaism, tearing that down, right? Dismantling that program and instead um, building up this new religion or new program, new way of life called the Law of Christ and Christianity. And so this is a very popular way of talking about and comparing and contrasting the law of Moses with the law of Christ. Wouldn't you agree? Um, it's it's no secret in Christian circles. Just pick up any um, uh, Christian theology, Christian um, commentary, uh, you know, Bible book, uh, uh, study on the book of Galatians or something like that, and you'll get the picture that uh, Judaism is out, Christianity is in. Law of Moses is out, the law of Christ is in. The Old Testament is out. The New Testament is in. The people of Israel are out. And the people of God known as the church, or Gentile Christianity, is in. And thus, the whole replacement theology package, the whole supersessionism picture, uh, is um, kind of held together by the idea of old versus new. And that's where we get back to the sermon, or the example that Yeshua left for us in Matthew. We've got this old wine and new wine. We've got this 
old patch in a new garment or a new patch in an old garment and stuff like that. And in Yeshua's sermon or his analogy or his, his, his um, par par parable, whatever you want to describe it as, he's obviously contrasting something old and something new. But the, the challenge for us is to figure out what are the symbols pointing to? What are they referring to? Because he doesn't follow up his little analogy with with an exact one for one explanation like he does in other places in his in his in his teachings where sometimes he'll say um, here's what I mean by the parable and explain it like sometimes the disciples will scratch their head and say master what do you mean by this and that and this and that and he'll say let me explain it to you and then he'll just say this is this and that is that and he'll give us the, 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 the word pictures and tell us what he means but in this case he doesn't he doesn't we have to infer from context and from the, 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 the kind of the rest of his lifestyle what is he meaning and I think we can infer I'm gonna get to that eventually but at first I want to bring in another example but I don't think I'll do it tonight let me finish my own conclusion here so I say the overall thrust this is just my understanding of pastor of John MacArthur again you've heard me over and over again uh, give um, um, uh, the uh, what's the word the, the the possibility that I could be misunderstanding pastor MacArthur over and over again I've conceded to the idea that I could be wrong in what I'm understanding about his sermon. But, as far as I can tell, here's my um, conclusion. The overall thrust of Pastor MacArthur's sermon about the incompatibility of Judaism with Christianity, in my opinion, simply cannot be the best way to understand Yeshua's parable here in Matthew. All right, so we're talking about the, the version of Matthew, which is essentially repeated for uh, in Mark and in Luke, and it doesn't show up in John, but you can go back and read the other versions to see if there's something that I missed here. But the, I don't think that this is the best way to understand the parable here in Matthew if we are giving the weight of the rest of scriptures their complete and deserved reading. So we go on to read about um, Yeshua bringing other people into the faith that he's that he's preaching. This 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 walk of of righteousness that Yeshua is demonstrating and preaching. Right, he's going around healing people. He's going around talking about the kingdom. He's preaching forgiveness and and reconciliation with the Father. And this life that he led and life that he taught gets picked up by the disciples, right, the 12, or at least the 11, since one of the disciples betrayed him and, and fell away, right, Judas, but the other 11. And then Paul comes along and takes this commission from the risen Yeshua on the road to Damascus and begins to write letters on how to walk this theology out, right, even more so than any of the other 11 apostles. Paul was used, utilized by Yeshua, even though Paul wasn't one of the original 12 or one of the remaining 11. So Paul is really the primary author of the New Testament. Everyone agrees, right? He wrote, there are 27 books in the New Testament, and Paul wrote, what, 13 or 14 of them, depending on how you dispute the book of Hebrews. I think it's 13, 14, last time I checked. Maybe it's 17? I need to go back and count. But um, he, he wrote most of them, right? That's fair to say. So um, it's Paul that is really... Uh, and I'm closing with this. It's Paul that's really um, looked to as the chief contributor to this idea that Judaism has been replaced by Christianity. Because when you read through Paul's um, writings and look at his own lifestyle, like I referenced Galatians, Paul talks about this former manner of life, and also we seem to find a heavy emphasis in Paul's life about this old man and new man experience. 
and about how that um, something is stripped away from us when we experience the new life and new birth in Messiah. And so really the question is, again, is Judaism compatible with the Christian message? Um, to the degree that Judaism can be practiced as a believer in Jesus while you retain your faith in Messiah, but yet still practice the lifestyle that God outlined for his people in the pages of the, of, of the Torah, right? If you're walking out that biblical lifestyle as a Jew and you are doing your best to keep the commandments not under your own power, but under the power of the Holy Spirit, now I realize that, and we've been talking about this earlier in my study before I even started the recording, sanctification in the Bible is a process that is a kind of a partnership between the Spirit of God in your life and your own will and volition, right? You have to consciously decide that you're going to do what God tells you to do, but at the same time, it's God who's going to empower you and change you from the inside out so that you want to do what God is telling you to do. But at the end of the day, um, there's something that you need to do, right? I, I, my arms and legs aren't going to move in robotic fashion automatically and start keeping the commandments as if I'm surprised. How did that happen, right? Um, maybe I am surprised by holiness from time to time, right? Because I might think that I would have reacted a different way in any given scenario. But the point I'm trying to bring it bring uh, in my closing here is that as we uh, make a conscious choice to keep the commandments of God, the ones that are outlined in the Bible, the ones that are already um, given to us in the Torah, there's no need to think of that as um, an old religion. We don't have to think of it as incompatible with the new life in Messiah. Indeed, as we read through the book of Acts, and I'm really closing with this, there are thousands of Jews, I'm paraphrasing, I think it's Acts chapter 21, there are thousands of Jews that were known to have professed faith in Messiah, and yet they were zealous for the Torah. That's what Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wrote for us. That's, that's the details they left for us. This alone tells me that Pastor MacArthur's description of Judaism as being incompatible with religion can't be completely accurate. Because otherwise, the fact that those Jews were still zealous for the Torah would have been a... Um, what do we say, a black eye on their track record as Christians. So, that's um, that's my take. So, that'll do it for our study on uh, Judaism v. Christianity uh, for tonight. We'll pick this up next week, where we'll begin to talk about the example from Pastor David Guzik. And we'll, again, we're looking at the same passage in Matthew. We're just going to look at it through the lens of another Christian pastor. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to tetetor.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. 
speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Tour Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of, of, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there those of you who are regular givers just absolutely um, so grateful I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time so uh, please do continue to keep giving uh, those of you who are regular givers those of you just give me one-time gifts that's fine as well too I mean uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and take the next 20 or 30 minutes and continue to work our way through the notes. We're talking about this idea of Unitarian views versus Trinitarian views. And um, there's really a heavy emphasis in this part of my study on the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is a three-part study that is available on my website at tatesaytor.com. And it's a three-part study that's broken up into those three parts on purpose since it's a Trinity study. The first part deals heavily with 
God the Father and the identity of God. The second part deals with the nature of Messiah, Yeshua, and you know the hypostatic union between fully God and fully man. And now we're in this third part where we're talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit. So we just uh, finished looking at this quote. Uh, I believe it's from a website, Unitarian.com, or something that. Let's now turn to my study, pick up uh, where we left off uh, two weeks ago, um, and continue talking about this idea of Unitarian and, and, and uh, uh, Unitarian thoughts versus Trinitarian thoughts and things like that. I say, and lastly, lastly, a lengthy quote from Tim Haig, um, and then the late Charles Haddon Spurgeon will close out the section of my commentary. So we're, again, we're talking about Unitarian versus uh, uh, Trinitarian theology when it comes to the Holy Spirit. All right, so let, first let's look at um, Tim Haig's notes. Quote, as we, these are, this is Tim Haig. Quote, as we've seen, the primary issue faced by the early Christian church as it sought to define the Godhead was how to avoid two opposing errors. On the one side was the need to maintain the infinite oneness of God, that is to avoid teaching a ditheism or a tritheism. Okay, so we're talking about the early Christian uh, Greek thinking fathers, Greek speaking early church as it began to be heavily um, populated by non-Jewish members, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? The Holy Spirit was working mightily in those early days with... Um, uh, Christian uh, Gentiles, uh, so uh, uh, the Holy Spirit was bringing more and more Gentiles into the family of God. And in their discussions about um, God, they, they asked questions that perhaps maybe Jewish believers or Jewish people didn't really think. They kind of just took for granted, but maybe didn't vocalize. Like, what is the scope of God's nature? How is he put together? How is it that Jesus is God, but God is God, and the Holy Spirit is God? And you know how can we verbalize that? And so, uh, there there was a time period in the early church when um, creedal formulas and and apologetics were I mean they were just the order of the day. Um, heresy was was uh, rapidly rising it, uh, in ranks. Um, uh, opposition to uh, monotheism, opposition to Yeshua being very God. And so very early on, Arianism was one of the early heresies that was uh, to be combated. Um, and modalism. Remember, here, uh, uh, Arianism and modalism are just two of the very early heresies. Arianism is a is the belief that Jesus is not fully divine. He's he's human, but that's essentially all he is. He doesn't have divinity. He's a creature created by God. He's the highest cre creation. He's the very first creation of God, but he's a human that's been divinized by God. He's he's been. Um, given God's status, but he's nevertheless a human. So he's not equal with God. He doesn't have the same nature as God. He doesn't He's not. He doesn't uh, have the same stuff that God is made up of, right? The homoousian and things like that. So the early Christian church had to deal with that heresy of Arianism. The other th uh, heresy that they had to deal with very earlier on, I think Arianism was one of the first, and the other one that they had to deal with was um, um, modal, uh, dynamic monarchianism or modalistic monarchianism, a form of modalism that basically teaches there's only one God, but he reveals himself as in three persons, or ma I'm not, sorry, not three persons, but three masks, three disguises, but there's really only one God swapping out the masks. In other words, Jesus is stripped of his personhood. There's no, no really whole person of the Holy Spirit. There's just one God, a singular God, but he exists as a soul being that um, 
uh, wears these uh, uh, outfits, right? He changes his hats, swaps out his um, uh, outfits whenever he wants to walk among humans, right? He disguises himself as Jesus or he disguises himself as the Holy Spirit. So that's really what um, um, uh, Tim Haig's just referring to it, all right? Dytheism and tritheism. All right, he continues. This is Tim Haig. For in seeking to emphasize the deity of the Son as equal with that of the Father, it appeared too close to affirming a ditheism, right? Two gods, more than one God. Remember, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 teaches that teaches Israel that here is the Lord our God, the Lord is one, meaning there's only one God, there's only one Lord. And for for Christians to assume or teach or or even imagine that there's more than one God is outside the pale of biblical theology. They weren't willing to accept that. They, they the early Gentile Christian church, uh, carried the monotheistic claims that Judaism had, um, um, what do we say, uh, foundationally held to and preserved thousands of years before the Gentile Christian church element uh, was recognized. And so the Gentile uh, uh, early church leaders uh, believed that, what the, that the monotheistic aspect of God was accurate. There are not two gods, there's only one God. So it's not tritheism or ditheism, it's monotheism. Hey, continues. And to add the deity of the Spirit as equal with that of the Father and the Son, move towards a tritheism. So this is, again, a, a charge that we as Orthodox with a small o Trinitarian believers need to carefully clarify when we're having dialogues with people who don't quite follow along with what we're trying to say when we say we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you look at the math on paper, it seems like there's one too many gods, right? Three gods instead of one god, or a three-headed god, or something like that. And what we're trying to explain is, no, in the mystery of the Godhead, there is one god, but there are three persons. They are all equally god, but they are one being. So it's three, one what and three who's. We can't fully articulate it or explain it or wrap our minds around it, but we affirm it. And so um, that's the mystery. So let's keep reading Tim Hegg's notes. He continues, on the other side, right? Remember, there were two extremes, right? I've got this little graphic where I talk about of the ditches that we as Orthodox Trinitarians want to avoid, the ditch of Arianism one on one side that teaches that, that there's um, only one God and that Jesus is not deity, he's not God. And then there's the other ditch on the other side of modalism that teaches that there are that there's one God who just wears three masks, or maybe even tritheism on the other side, depending on how you look at the ditch, that teaches there's three gods. So one God versus three God, or just one God who wears three masks versus uh, something else. So either way, these are all these are all ditches, like a bowling alley with gutters on either side. That's what my little graphic looks like that you're seeing on the screen right now. Bowling ball needs to go down the center of the, of the alley in order for you to hit a strike, or even to hit the pins at the other end. But if your ball, ball goes into the gutter, well then... Right? That's that's what is that a gutter ball? So, isn't that interesting that in 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 bowling, if it's a, if you get a strike, it's a good thing. But in baseball, if you get a strike, then it's a bad thing. Okay, strike one, strike two, strike three. All right, I'm I'm mixing my analogies. Never mind. There, my mind's wandering. Okay, let's continue with Tim Haig here. Uh, on the other side, however, was the um, the issue of accepting the sun and the spirit as having distinct individuality in relationship to each other and to the Father or to Father God. So much so that they are there are three separate gods who are incohesive of one another. Haig says, when the infinite oneness 
of the Godhead was emphasized, this tended towards some form of Sabellianism or modality, right? Modalism. And then de-emphasized or even denied the individual distinctions of the Son and of the Spirit as clearly portrayed in the Scriptures. So the weakness of modalism is that it strips the other persons of their individuality. It, it, it relegates them to mere puppets that are being manipulated by a hand inside of the puppet. So um, Jesus isn't really a person. He's a puppet that looks like a man. And the Holy Spirit isn't really the, a person the, of the Spirit. He's a puppet that looks like the Holy Spirit. There's really only one person known as God. And this person known as God slips his hand into a puppet that looks like Jesus and manipulates the mouth, right, and moves it. You guys have seen the Muppets, right? You guys know who Kermit the Frog is. You know what I'm talking about. Well, Jesus is basically the same as Kermit the Frog. When you watch the, the Muppets, you know it's not really human, right? Kermit the Frog isn't alive. He's a, he's a doll, right? He's, he's a construct, right? He's a toy. He's something fabricated by people, and, and it's humans moving the mouth and moving the hands, right, on strings and, and poles and sticks, right? Or you guys watched the first two, um, first three uh, episodes of Star Wars, maybe I guess it's the second and the third one, where Yoda is introduced. He was a puppet, right? Frank Oz was, was, was operating him, right? Yoda wasn't a real human. I mean, Luke was human, and the other, you know, Leia was human, and Han Solo was human, and even Darth Vader was human. Well, maybe partially human. He was more machine now than man, right? But... Yoda was not human, right? Yoda's a doll. He's a puppet. Um, in in contrast, by the way, to kind of follow along with this funny analogy, if you guys ever watched The Mandalorian, then Grogu wasn't even a puppet, right? Grogu was a... Uh, uh, well, I think he was partially a puppet, but many times I think he was just computer-generated CG. But here's my point. In the early... Christian theology with the with the early uh, uh, first uh, er, uh, church fathers, they're wrestling with how do we describe Jesus? Is he a puppet of God? Is he someone that has full humanity and full deity? I mean, how do we describe him? Because there are places in the Bible where we see that he's fully human, but then there are other places in the Bible where he's described as having deity. You know, how do we reconcile those two? So, uh, Tim Hay concludes by saying, in short, the Christian church in requiring a way to define the Godhead in ontological terms. Remember, when we talk about ontology, we're talking about, um, as I kind of highlight it there, let me do this for you. Ontology or ontological is an adjective relating to the branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of being. Um, it shows the relationships or the relations between the concepts and categories in a subject area or domain, right? So the ontological discussion when we're talking about God is how is God's composition to be understood? What's he made up of? What are the sum of his parts? How can he be understood if we were to put him under a microscope in our laboratory? So in this discussion, uh, um, Tim Haig says, we're talking about defining the Godhead in ontological terms. They had to come face to face with defining what is essentially the undefinable, right? How do you define God? How can we, how can we understand that? All right, and then um, in my study, we've got this timeless quote from Spurgeon. Let me see how long it is. I think I can read this whole thing, and then we'll we'll uh, finish up tonight. You guys are familiar with uh, Dr. Uh, is he doctor? Yeah, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I think he is a doctor. Um, uh, Dr. Spurgeon. I'm quite sure he's a doctor. I just have some um, uh, unfamiliarity at the moment, but um, most of you are familiar with Spurgeon. Well-known, well-respected uh 
a Christian theologian of times gone by. Uh, let's quote him. All right, um, we're not critiquing his view on Trinity or anything like or on uh, uh, Matthew or anything like that. We're just talking about his notes on the Trinity, and I think they go a long way towards our agreement of, of better understanding God. So let's um, quote Spurgeon, Spurgeon here, and then we'll draw this part of our commentary to a close. Quote. We are so much accustomed to talk about the influence of the Holy Ghost and His sacred operations and graces that we are apt to forget that the Holy Spirit is truly and actually a person, that He is a subsistence, an existence, right? This is uh, Spurgeon. Or, as we Trinitarians usually say, one person in the essence of the Godhead. Speaking about the Holy Spirit, remember, this is um, Shema, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we're in the final third part where we're, where we're talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit. Is he, as the Unitarians say, merely another term for God? Is it synonymous with God? The person of the Holy Spirit is merely the person of God, and there are, are no other persons? Is that how we're to understand the Holy Spirit? Or is the Holy Spirit a personal force to be reckoned with, right? An attribute of God, a gift that God can bestow upon humans, or something that he can shoot from his fingertips like the Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars, right? That would have been Return of the Jedi. Is that the force, the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that how we were to understand God? Remember, there are, there are many different uh, views of the Holy Spirit and God, and um, the Unitarian perspective is quite different than the Trinitarian's perspective, although there's a little bit of overlap, is my understanding, is that the Holy Spirit is God, and yet he's a person as well. There's, that's the mystery of it. All right, so Spurgeon uh, con continues. I'm afraid that though we do not know it, we have acquired the habit of regarding the Holy Ghost as an emanation flowing from the Father and the Son, but not as being actually a person himself. And that's basically what I just described there, um, the, you know, the Unitarian perspective versus the Trinitarian perspective. And since we're, in, so we're still in that um, section, that makes sense. Spurgeon continues, I know it's not easy to carry about in our mind the idea of the Holy Spirit as a person. I can think of the Father as a person. Why? Because his acts are such as I can understand, right? We see uh, the Father, uh, 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 Spurgeon says, we see the Father hanging the world in ether, and I behold him swaddling a newborn sea in bands of um, darkness. All right, this, these are uh, Spurgeon's thoughts. Um, he's talking about the Father God. I know it is he who formed the drops of hail, who leadeth forth the stars by their hosts, and calleth them by their name. Right, This is God the Father. I can conceive of him as a person, because I behold his operations. So it's very easy for us to relate to God, because we see him doing different things. Like, we do different things. Right, That's how people operate, right? We know they're people because they do things. It's more than that, but that's part of it, right? Um, animals do things as well, but we don't call them people, right? So you guys, don't don't lose my analogy here. Let's continue with Spurgeon. Spurgeon. And speaking of the Son, I can realize Jesus, the Son of Man, as a real person. Why? Because he's born of my bone, he's bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, right? Jesus is fully human. He's truly human. He's 100% human, and he's truly and fully and 100% God as well. Spurgeon continues, it takes no great stretch of my imagination to 
picture the babe in Bethlehem or to behold the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, right? So we're talking about um, Yeshua's description of the king of martyrs as he was persecuted in Pilate's hall or nailed to the accursed tree for our sins, right? The son was the one who went through all these things. Nor do I find it difficult at times, Spurgeon says, to realize the person of my Jesus sitting on his throne in heaven or girt with clouds and wearing the diadem of all creation, right? We're talking about the Son of God, the, the, the Messiah who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, calling the earth to judgment as he's in heaven now, summoning us to hear our final sentence. However, notice this, right? This is Spurgeon. But when it comes to deal with the Holy Ghost, his operations are so mysterious his doings are so secret, his acts are so removed from everything that is of sense and of the body that I cannot so easily get the idea, right, speaking about the Holy Spirit, I cannot so easily get the idea of his being a person. Are you following along? Right? It's almost, it's almost this way on purpose. God is very kind of um, vocal and... Um, um, visible in, in, in that sense of who he is and what he does, right? All throughout the Old Testament, it's God doing certain things, right? Rescuing the children of Israel from Egypt and, and, and splitting the Red Sea and, 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 right, destroying all the Canaanites before the Israelites could go in. And then, you know, it's, it's God working through all the Old Testament saints and prophets and, and speaking to them and giving them the words to speak. God's name is there front and center. So it's very easy for us to, to relate to this person of the Father because he speak, he spoke so prominently. And then when we read through the pages of the New Testament, again, like Dr. Spurgeon says, it's so easy to relate to Jesus the man because he was one of us, right? He was one of the boys. He was one of ours. He walked and talked with us, right? We beheld him and we 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 ate with him and we slept uh and 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 uh, conversed with him and right we 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 got weary when he got weary and we laughed when he laughed and cried when he cried, right? And and so um um, Jesus was a man. He, he performed the same actions that all mankind does. So it's easy to relate to him too, right? Obviously, he was a person. He wasn't something strange for us to relate to. But the Holy Spirit, right? He is that 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 person of God that we, we have not seen. We haven't interacted with him, right? He doesn't, we don't have whole chapters dedicated to um, him, him talking in first person or something like that, right? Um, so, uh, I mean, we have chapters that are heavily spirit-focused, right? Like Romans chapter 8 and things like that. But I can, I can kind of relate to what uh, uh, Spurgeon is re uh, referring to here. Let's conclude what, with Spurgeon tonight, and we'll call this uh, uh, the end of our study. The Holy Spirit and his being a, as a person. As a person, uh, let me, sorry, I lost the force of his thought here. Um... The Holy Ghost, his operations are so mysterious, his doings are so secret, his acts are so removed from everything that is of sense and of the body that I cannot so easily get the idea of his being a person. But, as Spurgeon admits, a person he is. God, the Holy Ghost, is not an influence, an emanation, a stream of something flowing from the Father. But he is as much an actual person as either God the Son or God the Father. Amen? And that's a good place to stop for our Trinity study, right? To consider. I know that there are numerous Unitarians, uh, Christians, and other non-Trinitarians 
uh, Christadelphians, Iglesia Cristo, uh, one that's Pentecostals, and, and uh, monotheistic uh, believers who are going to leave comments on my videos. These are the comments that I have to address the most in all of my YouTube videos. Please continue to do so. I'm happy to dialogue with you on these issues. I'm not quite convinced that what I'm teaching is going to convince you, and you can be assured that what you're teaching is not going to convince me to change my perspective either. But let's let's have the dialogue for the sake of those who are unconvinced, who are still straddling the fence between who or what um, God is and how to understand them. Let's have this dialogue, and you can leave your thoughts, and I can share my counter thoughts, and we can go back and forth, so that people who are in decision mode can have a better chance of making their decision based on the information that's shared. So please leave your comments and questions and and things like that in the in the sections of my videos. Continue to do that, and as I have time, I'll relate or I'll um, interact with those. But that'll do it now for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. The liturgy is Genesis 17. We're discussing um, in our uh, Romans 14 uh, study about the um, relevancy of Israel as compared to the Gentile Christian readership in Paul's letter. Should the Gentile Christians even concern themselves with natural Israel um, who came before them? How are they still connected to one another? Is there any relationship between the two? Is circumcision still something that should be relevant to Jewish people and perhaps important to non-Jews, but maybe not um, practiced by them? How does all this fit in? Genesis 17 becomes a good passage to study because it talks about the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision, and the um, length in which this particular covenant sign is to exist among uh, Israel, namely forever. So for our liturgy tonight, I'll just read all of the passages or all the verses. I think it's like six verses or so, 9 through 14, 9 to 11, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, six verses. I'll read those tonight. And uh, then we won't look at this again next week. Starting right here over on the left side of the page, Genesis 17:9 in the ESV reads, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. How long are they to keep the covenant? Throughout their generations. How long is the Abrahamic covenant still in effect? Throughout the generations of Abraham's offspring. Yeah, sounds like a really long time to me. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So, sign of the covenant. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Right, very simple. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Verse 13, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. A how long covenant? Until Jesus comes. Oh, sorry, it doesn't say that. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. An everlasting covenant. So we know right away that Paul couldn't have been uprooting circumcision because if he did, then he's going directly against what Moshe wrote, God's thoughts right here in the book of Genesis. No, Paul could not have simply put an end to what God is establishing. And then the last verse, verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, very simple and easy to understand if you just read it at face value and understand that God is establishing an eternal covenant with Abraham and Abraham's offspring, and the sign of this eternal covenant also has eternal uh, significance. Circumcision has not been done away with 
at the coming of Messiah, and it was certainly not uprooted in Paul. And we're going to read about that challenge in the very next passage in, in Galatians. But let's first go back and read the Hebrew real quick. Let me just rattle this off for you real quick, starting over on this side of the page. Starting in verse 9, the Hebrew says, Vayomer Elohim el Avraham va'ata et briti tishmorata vazalacha acharecha l'dorotam. Verse 10, Zot briti asher tishmuru beini uveinichem, uvein zaracha acharecha himolechem kol zachar. Verse 11, Un maltem et basar arlatchem vahaya laot brit beni uvenechem. Verse 12. Uven shmonat yamim yimolechem kol zachar ledorotechem. Yalid bait umichnat kesef mikol ben nechor asher lo mizarachahu. Verse 13. Himol yimol yalid betcha umiknat kaspecha vahaita briti bivsarachem livrit olam. And the final verse, verse 14. Vaarel zuchor asher lo yimol et basar arlato vanichrata hanefesh hahi mea meha et briti he far. Now. Let's turn to the passage out of the Apostolic Scriptures. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And uh, these are the passages that many unfortunately turn to to somehow prove that Paul uprooted circumcision. Let's read it. Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Wow, circumcision is so powerful that it can actually uproot the work of Christ, I, as I say kind of tongue-in-cheek. All right, verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Obviously, we're talking about physical circumcision. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, i.e. circumcision. You've fallen away from grace. Wow, all those poor Jews who got circumcised, they severed from Christ. Verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. No, I'm just, you know I'm poking fun, and you know I don't follow that line of theology. But he says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, interestingly, God seems to express through Moshe that circumcision is relevant and important for Abraham and all those in his household for all his generations after him. But Paul seems to come along and say, uh, uncircumcision counts for nothing. You know, it's it, it, only faith working through love is what counts. Circumcision or uncircumcision really doesn't matter. Just, you know, don't worry about all that. Okay, we've got to rethink our theology here. Let's go back and read the Greek real quick. Starting um, right there. The Greek says, Te eleutheria hemas Christos eleutherosin Stekete un kai me palenzugo duleas in a keste. Verse 2. Ide ego palas lego humen hati in peritimnesta, peritimnesta, Christas humas uden o felese. Verse 3. Marturo mai de palen panti anthropo peritimnameno hati o felates est in holantanaman poiesai. Verse 4. Katergethete apa Christu hoitenes in namo, deke uste tes karatas exepesate. 
Verse 5. Hemes garpenumati ek pistios elpida, decaiusunes apek decametha. And then verse 6. In gar Christo Jesu ute peratame, tiescue ute acrobustia, ala pistis di agapes in ergumene. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video, and then after the video, we'll simply dismiss with prayer, okay? You're ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. They send in the questions and I submit some answers. That's the way it works. Here's a question that a reader sent in. Should we still obey all the commandments of the Torah even though we are Gentile Christians? Understand the question? Now, as I mentioned earlier, this week's question and last week's question are very closely related. There's a link here that I'm going to encourage you to click to watch last week's short YouTube video, Do Christians Have to Obey the Old Testament Law? This week's topic picks up right where last week's topic left off, but this time we will focus specifically on Torah obedience as it pertains directly to Gentile Christians. A sample question was sent in by an ebible.com e-bible reader, and it read as follows. Listen. I know I'm saved and justified by faith, but should we still obey the whole Torah even though I'm a Gentile? Paul said we uphold the law in Romans 3.28. Like, for example, should I not eat pork, according to Leviticus 11.7-8? Should we visit a priest when we have rashes? Should we put to death all who curse their parents? Although these are just a simple example, I'd like to be totally enlightened. Now, I read through that quickly, but we're going to hit each one of them in the study tonight, so don't worry if it seems like I'm going too fast. I will say right up front that I speak from the position of a Messianic Jew, that is, a Jewish man who has embraced his Messiah in the person and work of Yeshua Jesus. Because there exists one God, one Messiah, one Spirit, which is basically what Ephesians 4, 4-6 teaches us, right? Because of these truths, one body of believers called the remnant of Israel, a.k.a. the church, according to Romans 11, 17-24, one law from Genesis to Revelation for both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah to follow. You can read uh, passages in Exodus, Jeremiah, Matthew, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. I support any answer that upholds the continued validity and applicability of Torah for the lives of genuine believers, whether Jewish or Gentile. Go back and watch my video if you want to look up those passages. The original question had four parts to it, so I would like to directly address those four parts only. So here we go. I'll hit each of those four questions one by one. Should we still obey all the commandments even though we are Gentile Christians? That was the first question. There are no verses in the New Testament that teach the abrogation of Torah for Gentiles joining the remnant of Israel. On the contrary, Yeshua, the one true and everlasting king of remnant Israel, stated that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Read John 14, 15-21. And we'll flesh this out a little later on in the study. So don't worry if it seems like you've got these pushback verses. So basically, God cannot force his subjects to love him right? But loving God by choice with all our heart, our soul, and strength means becoming obedient to the commandments the Father has given to remnant Israel. The commandments our Messiah, King Jesus, upholds. God isn't pointing down from heaven, you shall keep my commandments, right? 
Here's our second question. I know I'm saved and justified by faith, but should we still obey the whole Torah even though Paul, uh, even though I'm a Gentile? Paul said we uphold the law per Romans 3.28. Like, for example, should I not eat pork, according to Leviticus 11.7-8? All right. Answer, the paradigm that is example established way back in the times of the Old Testament was that foreigners who attached themselves by faith to Israel's God also took up covenant responsibility to walk in God's Torah. Read ex, uh, see Exodus uh, 12.49 and other locations that use one law verbiage. Because God's promises extend through Messiah to the Gentiles joined to Israel, it must also stand to reason that God's promises of blessing found in the Torah also extend to those obedient Gentiles. So try to avoid pork as best you can. See how that works? Should we visit a priest when we have rashes? Yeah, that was one of the questions. Answer, I think you're referring to the commandments in Leviticus 13. Since there's no standing temple with functioning Levitical priests, application of this chapter has been put on hold. When the temple is rebuilt for the millennium, I'm sure you'll have a chance to obey these commands. But for now, if you have skin rashes, have other strong Christians pray for your healing, according to James 5.16. Or just go see a doctor. That's really the easiest way to find your healing uh, these days. I mean, God agrees, right? Question, should we put to death all who curse their parents? Although these are just a simple example, I'd like to be totally enlightened. What? Put to death? those who curse our parents. Now, you must be referring to Leviticus 20, verse 9. God is not a merciless manslayer, ready to kill people at the slightest infraction. The pronouncement of the death penalty found in many verses was simply the final punishment allowable under a theocracy. In reality, just like our modern courts today, the judges of ancient Israel did everything they could to prevent the death penalty from being carried out. You can read about that in the Talmud at Mishnah Makot 1 paragraph 10. One final word about Torah observance, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Okay, so listen up. This is the conclusion to my little slide here. God wants your heart. He doesn't want coerced obedience or affection. You need to hunger and thirst after the Messiah and the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, will cause you to have the same desires as the Lord. Understand what I'm saying there? This is straight Torah theology. God wants your heart. Spend time with Yeshua on a daily basis. I can't overemphasize that. Spend time with Yeshua daily. Cultivate a deep and meaningful relationship with Him by pouring yourself into prayer, Bible study, praise and worship, solid preaching, fellowship with believers, and confession of known sins. Do this, and your heart, like King David of old, will supernaturally be inclined to love the law of God and want to uphold and keep it. Read all of Psalm 119. And like David, you will declare of God's commandments. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. That's Psalm 19, verse 11. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily.
that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for um, the study. I thank you for your words. I thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to make the words alive to us and to challenge us and to continue to um, um, give us an opportunity to grow in our faith and to put feet to our faith and to, to be challenged to turn away from sin. Because it's indeed vital that we live lives that are pleasing to you. If we intend on um, being a proper witness in this world, if we intend on being light and salt like you challenged us in Matthew chapter 5, we have to turn away from sin. We have to pursue Yeshua as if our very lives depend on it. Because indeed, they do. So help us, Lord, to have a continued appreciation for biblical study, for deep study. Um, help us to continue to um, love one another with messianic sympathy, forgiving one another, uh, even as Messiah forgave us and loves us. Uh, draw us close to you, strengthen us, and continue to protect us from this awful, evil pandemic. And we'll be careful to give the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. Amen.